Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and together we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about designing for gratitude and meditation and how incorporating gratitude and mindfulness practices can be helpful in your daily life and, dare I say, in your own design practice. Joining us today as guest co-host is Tracy Swiss, a design operations consultant and producer who has incorporated her own gratitude and mindfulness practices into her daily routine. And our special guest is Raul Kolkarni, the CEO and co-founder of Suki, which works to help employees optimize work-life balance to strengthen emotional and mental health in today's remote workplace. Before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. We have another live show coming up on May 28th at noon Eastern. We'll be chatting about startups and designing for entrepreneurship with Sarah Hartman, who founded the Creative Economy Business Incubator at MassArt, and Steve Hoffman, who recently wrote the book Surviving a Startup. It's like the definitive guide to surviving a startup. Become a member of Design Museum and you get your member-only live show tickets at designmuseumeverywhere.org and be part of that conversation. And with that, on to this week's topic. When you think about the world today and the feelings of hustle culture, it's easy to feel lost in the pile of to-do lists, Zoom meetings, and an overwhelming news cycle. I know I just get so caught up in it. Many of us have heard that incorporating mindfulness and gratitude in our daily routines could be beneficial to our well-being. But what exactly does that look like? I'm excited to learn more. I'm joined by our guest co-host, Tracy Swist, to learn more about how she uses mindfulness and gratitude on a daily basis. Tracy is a design operations consultant and producer. We've worked together many times. She's been a mentor of mine. She's also a member of our board of directors. Grateful for that. Her career has connected her with a countless number of design professionals from nearly every design discipline. Tracy's clients include AIGA, Boston Society of Architects, Digma, IDSA, Filmmakers Collaborative, just to name a few. And she worked as the design operations manager of user-centered design at Bose Corporation. Recently, Tracy began her own mindfulness journey that has improved her work and relationships. Tracy is no stranger to complex problem solving where she considers all the variables and addresses conflict. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. Nice to be here. So yeah, let's jump in. In this episode, we're chatting about the impact of mindfulness and gratitude on design practices. And since you've worked with many people from many different design backgrounds, what are your thoughts on the way that the current design community views mindfulness and gratitude, whether it's in their own practice or in their lives? Yeah, I think in general, getting people to actually pay serious attention and carve out time to build these practices in their life is challenging in general, not just in the design community or for design professionals. And my theory about that is that the way that mindfulness and gratitude has been discussed over the years, yoga, it feels very otherworldly. And if we can find a way to make it relatable to people in the way we communicate it or the way we talk about it, the benefits are enormous. And 
it really had to stop and think about what do I think specifically about design could be improved and designers' experiences. And the, the one thing that comes to mind for me as the strongest point is the idea that these practices really teach you to be present. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And synthesizing disparate pieces and sort of being open to what comes up as you explore what they look like together as a story. When did you decide to incorporate these new habits into your daily routine? You know, like many people, it came to me through a crisis. I was not able to manage the crisis that I was having in my life. It was a health crisis, but it impacted my relationships. It impacted my physical abilities. I was significantly limited. And I was raising a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, and I was working full-time. So it, it, it had cognitive impact. And so I came to these practices because I, I had engaged a life coach to say, help me, I'm drowning. And one of the very first prescriptions that he gave me was to start learning how to meditate. And I was, of course, like everybody else, I was like, really? That's it? And he introduced me to an app called Headspace. He said, you're going to practice it three times a week, three minutes each. And I followed his guidance and that's exactly what I did. And and here I am five years later. And uh, when I sit down to meditate, I, I, I meditate for about 20 minutes. And I say even more important than carving out that time to meditate on a sort of pre-scheduled basis it's incorporated into my day-to-day life now when I'm falling asleep, when I'm waking up, when I'm having a stressful moment, when I'm feeling really grateful. It's right there. Hmm. Yeah. Tell us more about like kind of the routine of it, because I think that's key, right? Is that's, It's a regular part of your week, of your day. Yeah. So, you know, I think I'm not unique in that everybody's mind is full of chatter. <laughs> it's And like when you lay your head on the pillow at night, it can be the loudest Yes. <laughs> and so for me, meditation has taught me to ignore the chatter. Don't believe what your mind is telling you. Don't or don't listen to your mind. Don't lean into what your mind is telling you because that thought is going to come and go so quickly if you don't give it any energy and attention. And that's what I learned through practicing meditation. And you, I can't control what my brain thinks about but I can not give it energy. I can choose not to give a thought energy. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. What is the impact on you, on your relationships, on your work? How would you describe it? It's been so life-changing for me. I mean, honestly, meditation is not anything that I, I mean, like everybody, I, I just, I thought, well, that sounds really great. Maybe someday I'll try it. But it wasn't until I was in survival mode and I really needed something to help me not only cope in the challenge that I was facing, but learn different behaviors. I needed to learn how to be and behave differently. And so it's given me through that meditation, I was able to then start a yoga practice. And after that, I started a gratitude practice. And I, I love the idea that all of these are called practices because as my coach used to say to me, some days you'll show up to it and you're going to suck. <laughs> and other days you're going to show up to it and you're going to do great. Mm-hmm. I love that. So I, for me, they've been, meditation has been a complete game changer in terms of how I show up for myself to my family. And I think in all my relationships. What challenges did you encounter as you were trying to you know, fit this practice into your normal routine? 
Starting with three minutes at a time, three days a week was very specifically prescribed to me because I was raising young children and I was working full time. And it was probably, you know, that was easy, right? That was pretty easy. And it was months later after doing that and you sort of gradually build, you know, you add two minutes here, you add another five minutes there. It started to become something that I needed uh, or did I want more time? Did I want to invest more time in this? And the fact that I was seeing results made that an easy yes. Yeah, the feedback loop. Yep. And then where I started to struggle was when I was trying to kind of go from a 10-minute meditation towards a 20-minute meditation. It's exhausting (laughs) (laughs) to try to shut your mind up for that amount of time or to, not you're not shutting your mind up, but to try to ignore your thoughts for that amount of time. Yeah. I like the whole idea of building up to it. And just like you would if you were practicing, like like you said, like if you were, uh, I've run marathons, right? You start by running, you know, three miles a day for the first few weeks, and then you kind of keep upping it and keep upping it. And so yeah. it makes a yeah. lot of sense. You do it one step at a time. Mm-hmm. How does a gratitude come into it? I heard you mention that as an, another practice. What does that mean? And how do you, how do you practice gratitude? Yeah. So um, I think I'm sort of just going to echo what I learned from my coach on this, and then I can share my own personal experience. But, you know, in the in the middle of this crisis, when I engage this coach, of course, I'm like, you know, telling him that sucks, and this is hard, and I can't do that. And this is wrong. And that nothing is the way I want it to be. And he would say, you know, just don't try to change anything about the way you feel about it. Just observe what your thoughts are and your feelings. And the other important thing that he said to me is um, about gratitude. It's gratitude is not a thought, it's a feeling. So if you're really in, present and in the moment and you're saying, what is making me feel great right now? Is it this warm blanket, this hot cup of coffee, the sunshine outside, the smile on my son's face? Whatever it is, feel that moment, that feeling of gratitude. So let's go all the way back and talk about how do we make this more relatable I think it's a great question. I'm actually very curious to hear from Raul how they message this when they go into companies. And from looking at Suki's website, part of it is that they provide data behind it. And I'm curious to know, does Suki generate their own data? Are they tracking or are they using some other source of data? Because it it seems to me that, you know, Nobody would turn away the idea of having a happy, healthier, more connected, present (laughs) workforce. Mm -hmm. However, when you walk in and say, we're going to do this through challenges in resiliency, and we're going to measure your results, I have to believe people take a step backward. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an unknown, I guess, maybe that's that's kind of where it starts with. So maybe it starts with just educating. And like you said, like hearing stories of people that it was so life changing. We're all dealing with these similar, like, like I said, the hustle culture and just work, 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 never stepping back. So maybe it's about sharing these stories. Yeah. And also I think maybe realizing that there is no silver bullet, you know, we're all, we're all thinking, oh, when I retire, I'll be more relaxed. (laughs) Oh, when I have kids, I'll be more content. And somehow that's not the way that it actually turns out. You arrive at those moments and you think, oh, shoot, am I screwing up? Am I doing this right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Because I don't feel that contentment. I don't feel relaxed. And so it's been my observation. It's a hundred little things. There is no one silver bullet. 
Yeah, so true. We were both at the Workplace Innovation Summit. Actually, for our listeners now, Tracy was very helpful in actually making the Workplace Innovation Summit happen last year. So we both went to Raul's session. I wonder, Tracy, if you can just kind of tell us a little bit about what that session was like. And then I think you also heard a bit from attendees, you know, kind of thinking about the impact it had. And I wonder if after going through that, you were sort of like, okay, there's something here for the design world. Yeah, I mean, I... I personally feel like there's something there for the human race. (laughs) And because designers are in a position of trying to create and problem solve, this type of practice opens up different parts of your brain. That's the way I see it, right? And I I know very little about the technical words to use here, Sam, (laughs) but like when you're thinking and doing, there are certain parts of your brain that are activated. And when you're just breathing in and breathing out, there are different parts of your brain that are activated. And so you're in those moments, you're opening up space for inspiration to bubble up, new ideas to pop in. I loved his session. I've never really done anything like that before from a meditation standpoint. I left the session feeling amazing and just feeling so much less stress. And I don't know, it just helped me go into the rest of my day in a way that I've just never felt anything like that before. So, And for you to be able to do that in the middle of producing a five-day event? A huge conference, yeah. You either really needed it (laughs) and took a nap. That's right. (laughs) Well, maybe your brain really needed it. It really needed that moment of pause. Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember when you and I were planning the summit, we kind of put that in the middle. And now I know why. And it was it was great for me. And that, that really spurred me to want to have both of you on the podcast. So I'm excited to be chatting about this and I'm hoping more people are going to try it. And we'll learn more from Raul in a minute. So thank you, Tracy. Thank you for sharing a little bit of your journey and what this all means to you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Tracy's work, check out her new website, livingthings.io. And Tracy, as I said, we're going to bring Raul Kulkarni into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Raul Kulkarni. Raul is the CEO and co-founder of Suki, which combines modern analytics with proven practices to build strong communities that bridge mental wellness with cultural understanding. Raul has an MBA from MIT, a master's in public health from Tufts Medical, and his BA in clinical psychology and community health from Tufts. He also studied abnormal psychology at Cornell. Raul spoke at our Workplace Innovation Summit last winter on strengthening mental resilience in the modern workplace, where he led a group meditation and gave tips for developing a mental wellness routine. Tracy and I were both there and had an amazing experience. 
Raul is skilled at leveraging his background in psychology to make approachable changes for overall mental wellness. Raul, welcome to the show. So happy to reconnect and and be here on the podcast. Um, Thank you for having me. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. As I described, uh, you have committed your career and education to understanding the psychological effect of mental wellness. And I remember you grew up in New Jersey, right outside of New York City. So I always think like, oh, New Jersey, New York, East Coast, go, go, go. Like everyone's just like working, working, working. Do you think that kind of being in that sort of workplace culture and general like economy culture kind of helped you view mental wellness in society in a different way? Um, yes. The answer is yes. Growing up on the East Coast, I certainly felt the that it was a really fast-paced way of life. I think most people, when they hear me talk and when they get an overall general sense of my energy, when I was growing up, they would always say, oh, you belong in California. You're on the wrong coast here. And so I always thought that. I was like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to go to the West Coast and, and that'll be a totally different vibe. And then I I moved to the West Coast. I, I moved to Seattle. I think, though, they, they didn't <laughs> tell me, like, make sure you're not <laughs> working for a, a management consulting firm <laughs> while you do that. Whoops. And so I was working for McKinsey, which is just notorious in terms of or that that industry in general is notorious about the commitment you need to have towards your job. And so I was, even though I was on the West Coast, you know, it was it was great to see the Pacific, but at the same time, I was probably working even more hours and feeling that grind even more. And so that compounded by the fact of I grew up with, I would say, very traditional immigrant parents that were from India. And that there was always a high expectation to achieve. And so, you know, all those degrees you you talked about in my intro, it's certainly not because I just love to study. <laughs> it was... Uh, <laughs> love that school. Right, right, exactly. It was um, a, a mixture of nurture and nature there. And so that I think too, there was always this expectation to perform, always this expectation to do your best and get results with it. And so that sort of compounded over time. And so for me, it stemmed from a really early age, this fascination with my mind is getting bombarded with a lot of different pressures right now. What are some ways I can try to build resilience towards all those external stimuli that are continuously hitting it? And so better understanding the mind, better understanding my parents, you know, that was all part of the motivation for for studying clinical psychology. And that ultimately led to my role right now with Suki. Let's touch on mindfulness. It's a word I hear a lot, and I'm sure our listeners hear a lot, more and more part of our conversations, particularly at the museum around workplace. So what is mindfulness exactly? Can you help us define it? Yeah, it's a, it's um it's one of those weird concepts. Like everyone kind of has an idea what it is, but but not not completely. And um and I'll say even myself, I, you know, I'll catch myself I'm guilty of mixing it with meditation even though theoretically I know, you know, mindfulness is almost like a subcategory of meditation, but mindfulness to me, my favorite definition, well, there's there's two definitions I like. One of them's more of a metaphor. So the first one is simply going from autopilot to becoming self-aware. And so really going from operating on muscle memory through your day-to-day. You know, you wake up, you're doing your actions, but you're not completely there. You're not completely present. And so 
being intentionally present while being non-judgmental of that present moment, that's that's the key to mindfulness, really just bringing yourself continuously back into the moment. Another way to look at it is from the training aspect. And so my favorite analogy about mindfulness is, well, your brain is like a monkey and it is hopping from branch to branch continuously. That's why we feel so fatigued sometimes. And um, we have about anywhere between 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day, depending on how how quick that brain is rapid firing. (laughs) And so that's a very tired monkey. And so when you're doing mindfulness, you are putting that monkey on a stool or on a chair, and that monkey is going to want to quickly hop off. And every time it does that, it is just recognizing that it hopped off and then grabbing that monkey, putting it back on that chair. And the more you do it, the more you that monkey gets accustomed to being on that chair, the longer it's going to stay on that chair before it starts to hop off again. And so that training that every time you, you're doing mindfulness training is really like another rep in the mental gym. And so we're, we're building up that mental fitness. And so even though going to the gym, you you might leave the gym feeling sweaty, feeling great, and you just worked out hard, but you're, you're not going to leave with a six pack. And um, the same is true with mindfulness. Unfortunately. Right. Unfortunately. Right. <laughs> Hashtag goals. I have one additional description that we've used in um, yoga class, mm-hmm. and I, I can't claim it to be mine. I'm stealing it from someone inspirational, but I don't know who, um, which is try to bring your mind to where your body is. Hmm. Yeah, no, that I love that. And um, so much about mindfulness is really this mind-body connection that that you're creating. And um, and so, yeah, mindfulness is that moment-to-moment awareness of the present. And a key component about that is trying to meet that present with open arms, not judging it, not saying, I want this to happen, or not saying, I can't believe this is happening. It's It's just happening. And so really that that objective observer mentality fly on the wall of, of that present moment. You study people, you study mental health. What is a common misconception people have about mental health? Yeah. Oh, that's a there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> one of one of the biggest ones is though, is they a lot of times mental health gets conflated with mental illness. And um, those are two very different things. Like we all have mental health at any given moment. I have mental health right now. That bar is going to go up and down moment to moment. And so that mental health is really just collection of our emotions, of our feelings. And feelings are exactly that. They are visceral feelings. They're emotions that you can feel within your body. So again, going back to that mind-body connection right there. And so it's a collection of our thoughts or feelings and and general emotional state. That's going to create what your mental health is. And so at any given point, your mental health might be higher or lower. And so, so that's a big thing. People aren't excited to talk about their mental health. And when they usually frame that conversation, it's usually negative. It's usually about the bad things that are going on, the stress that they're having, the depressive thoughts that they're having. When you're experiencing mental health, even when you're you're eating your favorite meal or you're hanging out with your favorite people, that is still mental health. And what we're trying to do with mindfulness as well as other types of techniques to mitigate burnout is just 
overall raise you, where that homeostasis is, your, your general average of your moods, um, so that you can have better overall mental health. Is it true that the brain is biased to the negative? Yes. <laughs> it's called the negativity bias. It is something that we've evolved for better or for worse to have because it allows us to pinpoint problems. It allows us to basically identify risks so that we can avoid it. And so anytime something's good is happening, you might have this initial thought like, oh my God, this ice cream sundae is amazing. But wouldn't it be better if it had a cherry on top? Or, oh my God, this day is so beautiful outside. Wouldn't it be better if we weren't in a global pandemic <laughs> and so that I didn't have to wear a mask during it? Well, that constant thinking of about like, wouldn't that be better? Or how, how could this, what you're actually doing is you're you're identifying problems, right? Even in the good things. And so that's your negativity bias at play as well. And so we have to train our minds not to do that because naturally it's going to do that. And on top of that, when you have a negative experience, and so when you have a bad conversation, a fight with your partner or something bad happens to us, that is going to stick out a lot more in your mind. That's also negativity bias. In fact, there is a ratio they've come up with to, to figure out, well, how many good things need to happen to make up for that bad thing? It's actually five to one. So every time wow. you, you fight with your partner or your friends or whoever, it takes five good experiences to kind of like call it even Steven on that fight. And so, yeah, that's just our, how our brains work. And that's why doing things like gratitude training are so important because they are actually training our minds. You know what? We're going to focus on the things that are going well. We're going to focus on the things that we appreciate, that we're grateful for. Consistently doing that as, as almost cheesy as it sounds is you're building new neural pathways in your brain. You're restructuring your brain every time you do it. And that's why any therapist or any guru or, or anyone, they're, they're always going to tell you to do that same thing. Focus on, on the positivity. Focus on what's going right. Focus on the things that you're grateful for, whether it's blessing your food before you eat it, whether it's telling someone you love them, right? You're just reinforcing that same concept that as, you know, as much as, as many things that are going wrong right now, there's, there's a whole lot more going right. And so focus on that. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like designers uh, sort of naturally, like our job, right, is to like find problems and, and see. And I've had people be like, Sam, turn it off. Like you don't need to critique every single thing that you come across. And it's difficult. Um, but yeah, I just feel like designers have this like, it's like a positive version of that negative bias because it helps us like find problems to solve. But it can be exhausting for us and certainly the people around us. Um, so that's really interesting. Let's dive into Suki and how you all are helping companies like Lyft, Verizon, Capital One, World Bank incorporate this practice of mindfulness and meditation. How, how does it all work? Yeah. And so we're, we're a growing startup. So we're, we're very much an early stage company. I, I started this company with my co-founder just about two years ago. And so that first stage of the company was really trying to better understand the problem is as well as provide services and, and listen to, to what's happening. And it was such a huge for year for us to start a company, right? Really during this <laughs> pandemic, because workplace stress just went through the roof. 
not only did you have this global threat, so their sense of stability was just through the window. On top of that, they they had more time on their hands because they weren't commuting, they weren't leaving their homes. And what they were doing with that added time was actually filling it with more work. And so we're seeing people working longer hours right now. On top of that, they're not moving their bodies as much. And so they're more sedentary than they've ever been through remote work. And because of that, even though we might have all started the pandemic with these really ins- you know, aspirational goals, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a YouTube workout video every day, do a 30-day challenge. The truth of the matter is a year out now, right? We're April 2021, about 70, over 70% of us have gained weight. And so, you know, we're, we're farther away from that six pack we talked about in the beginning. <laughs> and on top of that, everything we're doing is through things like this, teleconferencing, Zoom. And, and that actually takes a toll on our minds. In fact, there was a new study just by Stanford that was published that validated that feeling we're all feeling. Zoom fatigue is a real thing. It's a real thing because our minds and our bodies are not used to this lifestyle. And it actually had some interesting insights as well in the sense that we're not used to seeing ourselves speak. Um, And so (laughs) even just by watching ourselves continuously speak on these calls, that is really distressing for our sense of identity. It's distressing for our mind. So one simple tip to reduce Zoom fatigue is actually just turn off the setting in your profile that says like, I wanna see myself speak. I've been doing that and it is hugely helpful. Yeah, What, what is this thing that makes us stare at ourselves while we're talking and I'm like, I don't want it. I'm sure as a podcaster, you probably get that too when you're listening back to a recording and you're like, do I sound like that? No. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's not how I sound. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> I think it was somebody on the board recently, Sam, told us there's some data points out there that the reaction that we have to seeing ourselves on Zoom and to seeing ourselves talking and is the equivalent, the psychological equivalent of stepping into an elevator and having 10 people in the elevator turn around and stare at you right. up close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think so. <laughs> how, how good is that camera? Can you see my pores right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but so this is a long way of, of answering your question. I basically started with a problem statement. <laughs> You're like, what's your company about? I'm like, let me tell you how bad the situation is. Let me tell you, is. there's a problem There's here. a problem right now. But essentially what we did to, in the first year of the company is we focused on basically better understanding the emotional pulse of where teams were, their sense of friendship, their sense of trust, their sense of burnout, and and really measuring that. So there was a data component, but then actually using that data to create very customized and and data-driven interventions. And those interventions included live mindfulness sessions that were conducted by corporate coaches who had a background in both corporate strategy, they understood the private sector, um, as well as mindfulness training. And so as well as we had workshops on social emotional learning, finding your, your personal sense of purpose, having better interpersonal relationships, things like that, how to fight right, which, you know, is definitely a skill. I I realized through that workshop that I've been fighting wrong my entire life. (laughs) So we started doing a bunch of workshops and um, we actually also started reacting to the current events. We had one on election stress. We had one on finding acceptance during 
political instability during the Capitol riots. We we had one right now, we're doing one with MIT on the, the rise of Asian hate crimes and, and how to be a supportive ally. And so we are very much reactive to the world that's going on around us. At the same time, we are really embracing and celebrating diversity, equity, inclusion. And that includes the type of programming we offer, whether it's racial stress or unconscious bias. But we also think about it in terms of the audiences that we're doing. We work with a lot of cultural affinity groups and um, as well as the types of providers that we choose to hire and, and actually do these sessions themselves. And so being culturally appropriate, culturally sensitive, super part of our core design. And um, and so that's all how we've been, and, and lately we've been doing a lot more digital retreats. Now that people can't get together, they can't go on a, a corporate retreat, We're we know that People are yearning for authentic, real connection as well as they're super stressed out. And so we create these digital retreat environments, which are almost like music festivals with different stages, but they're just like, <laughs> instead of instead of seeing, you know, your favorite bands, instead of like the flaming lips, we have your desktop yogi. <laughs> and I love it. And, uh, love and it. so we're doing these digital retreats. And then the next phase of the company, though, I'm really, really excited about, we actually partnered with some of the software developers who built ClassPass. And we're actually developing right now we're calling it the Biome. It's a it's a digital platform. You could think of it as Peloton, but for emotional well-being. And so it's live interactive programming consistently that you can do together as a group of employees, or you can do it individually. And, and you go on these wellness journeys. And these journeys are almost like courses that have different components, including mindfulness sessions, interactive workshops, on-demand videos. And so we're building that digital platform right now with different TED Talk speakers, sleep experts, nutritionists, yogis, and meditators. And we're, we're putting it all on this, on this one singular um, platform. And so I've learned so much more about design as well, thinking about the, <laughs> the UI and UX of the platform and uh, how to build it and things like that. So it's definitely been... That sounds so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're, 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 we're pretty pumped. We're, we're pumped about it. And so that'll be coming out this summer. And so we're, we're talking to our initial set of clients and, and really trying to get them on board right now. As a practitioner for these skills, I have found it hard to connect with most people mm -hmm. on these subjects. And I have intentionally, because of that, I've intentionally gone to seek out communities of people that are interested in having these conversations or practicing the same thing. So I, I joined a yoga teacher training group, John Kabat-Zinn's online um, support systems or uh, blogs, that sort of thing. But what I'm curious, you know, everywhere we go, everywhere I go, I can see one or two people who are sort of open to these concepts. And I'm very curious about how you approach this so broadly and in a corporate environment. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So one thing, I think the um, the culture is changing right now um, in terms of people's openness to to accept some of these more Eastern philosophies. And that's um, almost out of necessity. People people are really feeling drained right now. And they're, they're just like, get, what do you got? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll try it out right now. And so even in the workforce, in the workplace, this used to be a fringe benefit, a fringe concept of integrating mindfulness into the workforce. Even though right now, though, over 35% 
of employers are offering it. And, and these aren't just the Googles and Amazons of the world. This is like general mills. These are, these are, you know, a lot, a lot more kind of traditional companies, Boeing, things like that. Now, like having a headspace subscription is pretty common for a healthcare benefit or an employee benefit. And so I would say one, the, the culture is changing. The second is we never force it. Everything we do is always opt-in. And so, so that has also led to, you know, people are there because they want to be there. Another aspect too, is this idea of making it social, not just making it a solo journey. Many times kind of introspection, figuring out your, your spirituality or figuring out how you're, you're going to calm yourself and, and dive into your mind is, is such a personal journey, but it can feel lonely too trying to figure out the resources, trying to figure out the communities that can support you. And so what we've done is made it so that you can join teams that are, are interested in this. And let's say mindfulness is not your, your cup of tea. That's totally okay. And this new platform, we're saying maybe mindfulness is not the best way for your mental wellness, but we also have other options. And so if, if it's not mindfulness, maybe it's yoga. If it's not yoga, maybe it's nutrition. If it's not nutrition, maybe it's sleeping better. And who doesn't want to have better quality and quantity of sleep? You know, the older I get, I, I realize that that is probably one of the most important things in my life. And so figuring out where people are and, and allowing them to, to, to drive their own journeys on it is something that's really important to us. And so everyone's going to have different priorities as well as things that they're inherently more motivated to, to move towards. And that's why we wanted to offer a comprehensive view towards well-being, not just mindfulness, but offer that comprehensive, you know, kind of snapshot of well-being. And then hopefully something resonates with, with our, our users. During the Workplace Innovation Summit, you talked about the value of an emotional pulse check. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through that process, what that what that means and how you do it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's consistently changing how, how we're thinking about it. Um, when we first started, we had this really in-depth, we worked with the American Psychology Association as well as employee wellness experts to create this um, basically a self-reporting survey that had 50 questions across seven different pillars. And it was like your, your sense of mindfulness or ability to be present, your, your sense of community, your sense of stress levels, things like that. Your, how many close friends did you have in, in your, your company? And so, and then we would create these different scores and that would act as a, we would put it up on a data visualization or dashboard, and that would be your emotional pulse check. What we're realizing right now is that it's for us, we're actually getting better re reporting on, on asking questions that are less targeted. Um, we're not just going to ask like, Hey, were you able to focus not yes or no, um, because we, you get a lot of self-reporting bias that way, as well as people really do have survey fatigue. And that's another one of the fatigues that have been creeping up during the pandemic. They don't like, there's this aversion people have to, to filling out surveys and I'm, I'm included in that. And, um, and so we wanted to make it very simple, very short, um, using things like emotional, like smiley faces, a different range of it. And then there we can take ab 
actually the average of your, your moods and create a happiness index. Um, and so we can ask you at different times of the day when you're opening the app, when you're not opening up, just like it takes two seconds. Let us know where your mood's at right now. And, and then over time, we get that longitudinal data. And same thing with other aspects. You know, were you able to complete all the tasks you wanted to today? And so just asking that, that's another way of saying, you know, how is your ability to focus? Even looking at your phone and seeing how much screen time did you have on your phone today compared to another day, you can see a sense of, well, how plugged in were you? So all of those are kind of different components that we're continuously experimenting with when we're thinking about how's a team doing as well as how are individuals doing emotionally through this period of time, which oftentimes can seem really daunting, unstable, uncertain. And so having keeping track of your emotional wellness is something that you know we think is really important. Raul, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story, your expertise. Just really appreciate you being here. It's been, um, yeah, I just, I just like talking to both of <laughs> you. Yeah, you're, you're both very easy to talk to. So, you know, having a podcast cool. is probably a good decision for, for both of Thanks. you. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. Listeners, if you want to learn more about all this awesome work from Raul and his team, check out the sukiproject.com and we will post a link. Okay. It's my favorite time of the week. It's that time every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. As usual, I will go first. Listeners, I know I talk about Legos a lot in my weekly dose of good design because, well, I love Legos and they're great. One big problem with Legos though is that they are made of plastic and plastic is terrible for the environment. Lego did recently announce that they're investing 400 million in sustainability efforts and initiatives. And now they even have the Lego bioplastic collection, which has some bricks that are made of a plant-based plastic material. But this week I saw a really cool alternative to plastic Legos from a Japanese company called Makulok. These are basically Legos, same shape, functionality, everything, but they're made out of wood and they are beautiful. They come in a few different shades depending on what wood they're made of. So there's some in maple, birch, cherry. The company says they use wood from trees that are cut for forest thinning and that are usually too small to be used in buildings or in furniture. And so that wood would normally go to waste. They also say the blocks are free of harsh finishes like paint or glue. They are literally just sanded wood and they'll work with your existing Lego collection. So they're awesome. It uh, looks like they only manufactured a limited supply of these wooden Lego blocks. Uh, so check them out. They're really nice looking, really well made. Uh, and it looks like you might be able to order them all the way from Japan. Check them out at makilock.com and we'll post a link. Okay, that's mine. Tracy, you are up. So my product to highlight today is... I think specifically made for women. Let me highlight the challenge that women face. Most of us do not have pockets on most of our outfits. And so as you leave the house, you're like, where are my keys? Where is my wallet? Where is my cell phone? Because you don't have a pocket to put them in. And the O-Venture leather key ring solves 80% of this problem for me because it is worn on my wrist like a bracelet, as I walk to my car with my bags, it has all my keys. I've put a zippered credit card size wallet on there. So that's there too. 
And the only thing left that I have to obsess about where I, where did I put it is my phone, of course. <laughs> um, but you know, that moment when you're like driving down the street and your brain is in overdrive and you're thinking, did I take my wallet? Where did I put it? Oh, well, if I, my car is moving, then the keys in the ignition, if the keys in the ignition, my wallet's on the key ring, the OVENTURE leather key ring. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for being here. This was such a fun conversation. I'm so grateful for you sharing all of your thoughts around this. And I know you and I had a lot of fun uh, participating with Raul back at the summit. So it was cool. We got to do this. Thank you for inviting me. It's a topic that I feel genuinely passionate about. That's our show. I want to again thank Tracy Swist and Raul Kulkarni for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, become a member and check out Design Museum Magazine. This is our quarterly publication about design's impact in our lives. If you like this podcast, trust me, you will love Design Museum Magazine. It is beautiful. It's filled with articles and case studies about design written by thought leaders and change makers from around the world. Recent themed issues covered topics like the intersection of design and policing, healthcare design, and changes in the workplace. So check it out. You can subscribe directly to the magazine or become a member to receive Design Museum Magazine mailed to your door every season. And you'll even get the digital edition, which looks great on your smartphone or tablet. So go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on magazine. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on social media, on Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And we have an awesome weekly e-newsletter. Comes right to your inbox. You can sign up right on our website and you'll always be in the know of what's coming up at the Design Museum. This episode is written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom and editing support and research support by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.